The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. We have this week and next in Genesis as we walk our way through Jesus' Bible called the Old Testament. Today we're going to consider hope. Hope for blessing. Just looking at our prayer list, we pray because, we, we pray requests because we all know what darkness is like and we long for more light. This verse provides biblical context for the verses we're going to look at today. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, most of us in this room at least, that God would write the record of guilt that was against us, and he would do so by faith. For seeing that this would happen, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12 1 through 3. I'm going to read them. And now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Chapters 1 through 11 cover thousands of years and 19 generations from Adam to Abram. Chapters 12 through 50 cover only 400 years and only four generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, and his 12 sons who become 12 distinct tribes and make up the people that we know of as Israel and read about them all through the Old Testament. So there's something that happens at this point in the story. A massive slowdown. We've been flying very quickly through time and all of a sudden things slow down right here. This is what we know. Mankind has a purpose. God created mankind, people, you and I, in God's image. To be image bearers means that we are not here for us to make us look great. We're here to make God look great, like a telescope magnifying a distant moon. We are imagers of God. That means we were created for worship. And God didn't want us just to image ourselves where we were located. He said, fill the earth. Multiply. Subdue it. Oversee as imagers of God. Take who I am in you and let others see that I'm the king of your life. Mankind created with a purpose, created on mission. We have a problem. The problem is the reality of sin. And it's not just a problem external to us that we experience from the outside. It's actually part of who we are stemming from our original parents. We are sinners who sin. Rather than displaying the greatness of God in our lives, 
We so often follow the same pattern that Adam and Eve did in choosing what is right and wrong for ourselves. We decide what's good. We decide what's evil. For you, you can go and decide for yourself. For me, this is what I think is truth. And in such a context, God is not made much of, which means that mankind is not fulfilling his purpose. But God, in Genesis 3, said, curse is not the end. Even before he cursed mankind, he gave an amazing declaration. There's going to be two family trees. The serpent is going to give rise to offspring, yet they're going to be human. The woman is going to give rise to offspring, the climax of which is going to be a serpent-destroying, curse-overcoming, death-defeating deliverer. And so in our story, as it unravels, we have this contrast between these two groups. One, a chosen line of promise... Seth, in whose time man began to call upon the name of the Lord. Enoch, who walked with God. Noah, who experienced God's grace. Shem, who received God's blessing. And then we've got the other group, all the rest of humanity, the majority, who ultimately died in the flood, and then man's sinful state, not fixed, continued to multiply from the offspring of Noah. Noah's grandson named Canaan, the very people that Israel would have the most friction with, the very people that Israel would not kick out of the land in the book of Judges. And therefore, rather than imaging God, Israel would become what's often called Canaanized. They would go the way of the world. That's part of the offspring of Noah. It's the context in which the line of promise lives. Longing for blessing. Longing for hope. Longing for help. Longing for the day when many of those prayer requests would no longer have to be prayed. So we have this context of deep darkness. And yet, this light that's been passed on from generation to generation to generation all the way up to Abram. Last week I mentioned, I said there's two reasons that we see genealogies in the Old Testament, and I only mentioned the first. Who remembers one of the reasons, and it's the only one I gave last week, why we have genealogies in the Bible? Anybody? To carry the gospel forward, the gospel hope, the good news. So whenever we see one group of genealogies, and it's most of them in the Bible, it has something to do with the Messiah and God's purpose for all the world, that he's preserving his kingdom, and he's still on mission to build a full community of kingdom-oriented, God-interested people. And he will ultimately do it through his offspring of promise, a male royal deliverer. But then there's another group of genealogies, and we see them in Genesis three times. And these genealogies are not focused on those who are displaying God's glory. It's focused on those who are not. It's the rejected line of promise. They provide contrast to the other genealogies of hope. But not only contrast, I think they show up in the Bible because... When we read about all those who aren't honoring God, it gives clarity to the mission field. So you've got a group that are supposed to be on mission, displaying that God is important to us, that worship is central to our being, and then you've got the mission field represented by the other genealogies. So when you're reading the Bible and you come across genealogies, ask yourself, is this designed to help nurture hope in all that God has promised to be for me, ultimately in Jesus, or is this designed to provide the context where I came from and where most of the world still sits to remind me that I'm supposed to be on mission? Those are the two reasons we have genealogies. Specific background to Genesis 12. 
Number one, all the hope of the world hinges on whether or not there will be a line of promise preserved from generation to generation. Already we've had preservation through global judgment. Now I didn't argue for that when we, we didn't even get to touch on the flood, but I'm happy to walk through it one-on-one while I, why I think the Bible requires not just a, the death of all humans, but that it requires actually the death of all living things. That it requires a universal flood, not just a localized flood. And it's because in Genesis chapter 6, it said that the wickedness of all flesh and the violence of all flesh is what brought about the flood. And then it defines in that text that all flesh is not just mankind. The flood comes because of violence against that, that's happening among the birds, violence that's happening among the land animals. Why would we need to preserve birds on an ark? If a local flood rose, couldn't the birds just fly over the next hill? But instead, you need all samples of all living things on the earth, all terrestrial life on the earth needs to be part of the ark in order to preserve life on the earth. But God, by His grace, did preserve mankind through the floodwaters of judgment. And then in Genesis 9-1, He reiterated something. He said graciously, even though I've brought judgment on mankind, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And it wasn't just a commandment, it was a blessing again. Genesis 9-1, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful. It's an echo of Genesis 1-28. And remember, this wasn't just a commission that God's image bearers would go out. It was a blessing, meaning that it would only happen if God let it happen. And the fall, if it did anything, it said, oh, we will not show the greatness of God in our lives unless God enables it to happen. Because left to ourselves, we will sin. That's why those who are part of the line of promise are not those who bring great glory to themselves. It's those who call upon the name of God. It's those who, as it says in Genesis 6, 8, Noah enjoyed the favor or grace of God. It's those who receive grace. It's those who enjoy God's blessing. Those alone are the people who can image God. Those who hope in something they don't have and can't bring about in themselves this deliverer. Who say, I'm not it. I'm part of the problem. So that's the backdrop that we have here. World hope hinges on the preservation of the line of promise. And now we find a new threat. It's not a flood. No. From generation to generation, God has preserved an offspring. And all of a sudden, when we read, these are the generations of Terah in verse 27, and we read that he had three sons. We read in verse 29 that Abram took a wife. We read in verse 30, now Sarai... His wife was barren and had no child. And this is setting the stage for what you and I are going to define as faith. Remember, Paul in Romans 4 is going to look back to the life of Abraham and say, Christians, I'm calling you to walk by faith and I want you to look at Abraham to understand what it will mean. And it has something to do with trusting God to do for him what he can't do on his own. Sarah was barren. And when we read that she was barren, we can't just think this is one man's problem. This is a world problem because the narrative has set up this 
line of promise that's moved us from Adam to Noah, and then Noah had three sons at the end of chapter 5. It mentions Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, in chapter 11, verse 10, it started out, now Sarah, uh, uh, Shem had offspring, and it's moved us one person per generation, carrying this promise, this hope forward. And all of a sudden, we get to verse 26, and it says, And Terah lived 70 years, and he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And as it was at the end of chapter 5, where Shem was the first one listed, the first of the three sons, and he was the one who would carry forward the promise. Now Abram is the one who will carry forward the promise, but he's got a barren wife. All of world history hinges on this issue. And because of that, the story slows way down and calls us to take time to consider this man, his family, and what God wants to do through him. Barrenness. The curse as a backdrop to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. There's three key promises that are mentioned in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And all of them, strikingly, seem to be a direct response to the original curse given in Genesis 3. So what do we read? First of all, pain in childbirth. So the woman is said, you'll have pain in childbirth. Before that it said... There's going to be a lot, an offspring of the serpent and an offspring of the woman. And they're going to be head-to-head in friction. And the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So there's pain, and yet what we read now is that this painful childbirth is going to give rise to a nation. Genesis 12.2 I'll make you a great nation, Abram. There's an overcoming of the curse here. An answer to a problem. Oh yes, there's pain. And yet, there's going to be provision. A great nation is going to rise. And as we're going to see, it's through this nation, going to be called Israel, that all the world will be blessed. Not only that, we read the curse comes on the ground. All the earth is subjected to futility, but it's subjected to futility in hope, says Paul in Romans 8. So the ground is cursed. And now in our text, what we read is, Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, go to the land that I will show you. And then we read in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. And this land is going to provide the context wherein blessing will reach the nations. So the very context of the curse, where there's going to be tough labor, is going to all of a sudden be reworked. It's like the Garden of Eden is going to be rebuilt, beginning with the promised land. God is going to dwell with mankind once again. They're going to enjoy fellowship with Him. The promised land at the center of the world. The curse is being reversed. And then we see it most explicitly at the very end in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Up till this point in the book... The word for curse has showed up five times. And now in our passage, the word for blessing in just three verses shows up five times. It seems to be directly answering something. There's a context that is receiving an answer here. I will bless. You should bless I will bless those who bless you and all the families of the earth will be blessed. The very context of curse is being set up to be overcome through the promises that God gives Abram. 
And then we've got in the back of our minds what Paul said, Scripture, foreseeing that the Gentiles would be justified by faith, it was promised beforehand that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul understands blessing to be all that we find in the person of Jesus. All that we celebrate in this season of Christmas is bound up in verse 3 of Genesis 12. All the sin that we battle, the anger that we're so prone to, the laziness, the sullenness, the bitterness, the lust. God, I'm not imaging you rightly. Rather, I keep rejecting you and I hate it. And so what do we do? We look through not just the command to fill the earth as imagers, to oversee as imagers, but we remember, oh God, it's a blessing. You blessed them and said, and the only way that I'm going to image you rightly in my workplace and in my family is if you make it happen. God, make it happen. And the only way He can justly do it is because He sent Jesus, the offspring of the woman. Genesis 12, 3. So we come to our passage, and there is what I I just want to take some time to overview these three verses. We're going to camp on these three verses for the moment. Now, my translation is a little bit different than the ESV, and I just want to draw our attention to something, and that is. Well, first of all, let's just look at these verses and consider how promise-saturated they are. There's so much hope in these verses. Go to the land that I will show you, so that. So I want to look at the so that part, and on your handout you've got something similar to how I have it laid out up here. It's on your handout. So that I may make you into a great nation, so that I may bless you, so that I may make your name great. And then, using the exact same grammatical form, just an imperative, a Hebrew imperative, even though we don't read it in the ESV where it says, so that you will be a blessing. That sounds like it's just result, but it's actually a command in in the Hebrew text. And so that's, in in my little translation, I say, and there, that is once you get to the land, you have a responsibility. He's not only supposed to go, he's supposed to be a blessing. And both of these commands have certain results. The promises. So that I may bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's dominated by promise. That means it's dominated, this text is dominated by what God is committing Himself to do. Not only for Abraham, but for the world. For you and I. Because we become offspring of Abraham. A great nation. Consider what that means for a man whose wife is barren. That makes a big part of this whole story. Abram wrestling because the barrenness threatens the promise. And so he's going to do all that he can to make sure that God's promises holds true. So he gets Eliezer of Damascus. He's going to be my heir even though he's not my biological son. No, not Eliezer of Damascus. One from your own loins is going to be your son. Oh, well, then I'll go get Hagar, my wife's maidservant. I'll marry her, sleep with her, and then her offspring. That will fulfill the promise. No, you're, you're, you're working here. And this isn't about working. This is about believing. Is anything too difficult for me while Sarah's laughing in the tent? It helps color our understanding of faith 
these promises are massive. It will take a miracle for nationhood to happen. He's one man with a big family. We know it's big because when Lot gets in trouble in Genesis 14, Abraham and 13, sorry, 300 of his strongest warriors. I've got Isaac and Ezra, right? <laughs> Abram's got 300 men in his household who are able to go and destroy five Mesopotamian kings who took Lot away. So he definitely is big, but he has no offspring of his own. And because his wife's womb is dead, and because she's well past her years of childbearing, it will take a miracle. But that's not the only miracle in the text. Go to the land that I'll show you. Abraham, all of your offspring will have this land. And he owns this much of it. Zero. And it's filled with a bunch of pagans who don't believe in his God. Hi. My name's Abe, and I just want you to know that four generations from now, I'm going to own all this. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the book tells us that he has this level of influence. There's an entire king, the king of Gerar, a Philistine king, who's looking at Abraham as if he's a king. Think about city-states. This isn't like a country with one president. That's not the Canaan that Abram showed up in. He showed up in a in a country that had a lot of big cities. So there'd be a king of Chicago, and there'd be a king of New York, and there'd be a king of San Francisco, and they're all worshiping different deities. They all have different ethnic backgrounds, and they have their own little group. And there's a wall around their city, and Abram comes in with 300 warriors, and he's interacting with them. Well, maybe you shouldn't think Chicago. Think more like Coon Rapids. (laughs) That's more like the size of the city-state. So every city has a king, and they're viewing Abram as this, but Abram still doesn't have land, and it will take a miracle. It will take a miracle for him to get the land. The fulfillment of the promise is conditioned on a human response. And this is a tricky part of this text. Because... The language is go, that's an imperative, and then the verb form changes. And the way that the relationship of a command form followed by this type of verb form, it usually expresses purpose. Go so that I may make you into a great nation. Be a blessing so that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What that suggests to me is that The kingdom that God desires to establish with Abraham is not going to become a kingdom unless Abram leaves Mesopotamia. There's a condition there. So too, the world will not see the curse overcome unless Abram is is a blessing. Two commands. Beginning of verse 1, go. And then at the end of verse 2, be a blessing once you get there. These aren't the only commands in this text. I'm just going to jump, jump through a number of them. You'll see that there's a lot of obedience called for in this Abraham narrative. Chapter 17, verse 1, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Listen to these. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make you make my covenant between me and you. That's exactly the same pattern as we have in Genesis 12. Same grammatical structure. It's just translated a little differently. But walk before me, imperative. Be blameless, imperative, that I may establish my covenant with you. Genesis 18, verse 19. I have chosen Abraham... 
So let's picture this. We start with the election of Abraham in the mind of God. I have elected Abraham. I have chosen him. Your Bible might say, I have known him. But the verb is to elect. I have chosen Abraham that. You see that that statement right at, in verse 19 of chapter 18. I've chosen him that. What would the result be? Election is to overflow in his commanding his children and his household after them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now as he commands his children to heed the voice of God, here's the end. Command it, command them to follow me so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. God elected him so that Abram would be a good father. A good father who gives his, picture, his children a true vision that God is king. That's what a good father does. That's why God elected Abraham, that he might be a good father and say, God is to be the king of your life. And as those children hear and heed, the result will be, so that, verse 19 the Lord may bring what He's promised. 22, verse 16. You've offered your, been willing to offer your son Isaac. Now I know that you fear me. Verse 16 of 22. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. It's because you've done this. It's because you've done this and have not withheld your son that I will surely bless you. Do you hear that contingency? The blessing of God is coming in response to His obedience. Because you've done this, I will surely bless you. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Verse 17b, Your offspring shall possess the gate of His enemies. That's intriguing. Genesis 3.15. Remember the distinction between the plural pronoun and the singular pronoun. Your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because you've obeyed my voice. So we have these texts. Another one, 26.4, does the same thing. This is an intriguing element. We're going to be wrestling with the conditionality portion these next two weeks. Number three, everything in this text is driven by blessing. Five times, as I already said in Genesis 12, five times blessing this beautiful word that's something that comes from God. And it's the opposite of curse. This is a text that is designed to help you and I celebrate God's grace, His goodness, His sin-overcoming enablement, His sin-overcoming forgiveness that precedes it. Blessing. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, number one. You will be a blessing, Abraham. Number two, I will bless those who bless you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a blessing text. Next observation. I want to try to get our hands around this idea of The promises of God hinging on Abram's obedience. This is, this is very tricky. And it, because what we don't want to see is that in the very life that is used to contrast the law of Moses, Abram the man of faith, 413 years before the law was ever given, 
This is about believing, not about doing. We have to let the text, we have to try to understand, how do we understand the commandments that are given to Abraham? And they're not only commandments, they're commandments upon which they're they're mandatory in order to enjoy the promise. Go so that I can make you into a great nation, so that I can bless you, so that I can make your name great. Be a blessing so that the one who blesses you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse and so that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. How does a man who in Joshua 24.2 were told grew up worshiping the moon gods. He's in northern Mesopotamia and all of his family are pagan. Did you grow up in a family? How many of you grew up in that kind of a family? I'm asking. Where mom and dad weren't, weren't Christians. Yeah? Abram is a first-generation believer, like some of you in this room. He didn't have the heritage of a baton being passed to him. What does it take for a man to pick up his entire family and move across the world for the sake of the kingdom. What we read is the command of God saying, Go! You want to enjoy nationhood? And we can't just think, this isn't just nationhood. This is the answer to the world problem. Separation from God, eternity in hell, it's bound up in this one man. You want to take part of that through you, the curse being overcome, all the world being blessed? Do you want to take part of that? Be a blessing, Abraham. Display me. The best way you can bless anyone is by pointing them to God. This cannot be a commission to bring exaltation to Abraham himself. This is about God's purpose for the world to fill the earth with His image. So we have to try to understand how is it that these commands to go and to be a blessing are about God and not about Abram. So that in His fulfilling of them, God gets the glory rather than Abram getting the glory. So that even though the promises are contingent on obedience, the obedience itself is not meritorious, but rather God-exalting. How does Stephen, the first deacon, describe this episode in Acts chapter 7? Anybody know how he describes it? It's Acts chapter 7. Verse 2, 3, 4, somewhere in there. Anybody know? All the kids in the elementary class would have just beat you on your sword drill. (laughs) Anybody got it? The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. Now I want to go back to Genesis 12. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. That's what Stephen says. And all I read in the text is, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. And then I read in verse 4, So Abraham went. Is Stephen adding something to the text? Or is it in the text? What would make a man shake him out of his sickness called sin, out of his proneness to self-reliance, out of his joy of 
being close to family? What would cause him to let go of all that was normal, all that was comfortable, the majority was doing it, staying in Mesopotamia, doing their form of worship? What would arouse a man to say no and yes to God? To get up and go in the wake of words that would take miracles to fulfill. What would it take for a man to get out of his complacency, out of his selfishness, and move in obedience to God? Anybody? Faith through the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack what that faith would have to look like. What has to be true for Abram to obey and go? What has to be true in this situation? For him to be motivated to move. He has to know who God is. That is, the promise maker has to be believable. Do you hear that? But there has to be more. That that relates to the believability. God's God's ability to do it is related to his believability. But just because somebody promises you certain things doesn't mean you always act upon it. What also has to be present? He has to trust God in that. And we're trying to get our hands around what is it that would motivate such trust. But, but consider this. If I said... Tim, if you get up out of your chair right now and come, I promise you that I will give you my son's soiled pants from last evening. You're not moving, Tim. Don't you believe me? Do you believe that I, could, that I would give that? Then why are you still sitting? He doesn't want them. There has to be an added element to believability to motivate. Desirability. Now, let me see where I'm at. The promise maker must be in this text. Stephen's defining it as the God of glory appeared to him. This is a book about glory. It's designed to help heighten our affections for glory, to desire glory, to want more glory, to say what the world is offering is secondary to what God is promising, glory. This is a book that's designed to make glory look beautiful, to make glory look believable, to make glory look desirable. And Stephen's reading this text and saying, the only thing that could have moved this man from where he was to where he went is he had an encounter with glory. The the promise maker proved himself, showed up in such a way that he was both believable and desirable. How does the writer of Hebrews define faith? Faith is being certain of what we hope for. There's hope. There's new desires that are being elevated in my soul and a certainty of claim. A certainty of what we hope for. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then it goes on to say, without Faith, what? It's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must have two things. He who's going to follow God, who's going to heed the voice of God, who's going to follow his commandments, who's going to say no to sin and yes to him. Two things are conditioned. He must believe that he is. You have to have an encounter with God in such that you truly know who he is and what he says is real. He is believable. But not only you must believe that God exists, you must what? Believe He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. What He offers is desirable. 
Some have said the Abrahamic covenant, God's relationship with Abraham, was unconditional. I don't think that's the most helpful way to word it because it does have conditions all throughout the text. But Abram did nothing for God to come to him. Nothing. And I, I, I'm, next week we're going to consider the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And I just want to put that into a little bit of a context. Jump back just a couple chapters to chapter 6. The narrative that begins chapter 6 sets the stage for a whole context of global evil. And then it says in verse 8, But Noah found grace. That's the word, favor. Grace in the eyes of the Lord. And only after it mentions that does it say in verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah's righteousness, his blamelessness, his walking with God is all something that follows. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abram's growing up in the same context of post-fall world that everybody else is. Everyone is under the curse. Everyone is bound up in sin. But God intruded into Abram's life, and I pray he's intruded into yours. And he proved himself at a level incomparable to anything else in the world. Abram's obedience, this is what I'm saying in short, the obedience, when it says in verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 4 of chapter 12, so Abraham went, that was an obedience that flowed out of faith rather than being absent of faith. For him to go meant that he believed that God exists and that God was indeed a rewarder. This is an obedience that brought God great glory and brought the desirability of his promises into great um, telescopic magnification. God is proving himself desirable to a once dead heart. And Abraham says, yes, I want it. And that's what God does in each one of us every time we turn from sin and say yes to him. Now the unbelievable part of this text is that all of that is only made possible because of Christmas giving rise to Easter. Grace can only reach Noah, can only reach Abram justly because of the work of Christ. So I want us to just end here pondering The Scripture foresaw that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. Through you, Abraham, it says in verse 3 of chapter 12, through you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is, through you, men on the farthest reaches of the globe, and we've just understood them. The Tower of Babel happened in chapter uh, 11, and just before that, it gave us all of the 70 nations that sprung forth and went to all the far reaches of the earth. In chapter 10, you and I find ourselves among the wicked in in that segmented genealogy of chapter 10. That's where we grow up. That's our line We come from, most of us in this room, uh, who come out of a European heritage, are all offspring of Japheth. Shem is the Semitic race. So that includes the Jews, but intriguingly also the Arabs. And I only say intriguingly because also often the Arabs are called anti-Semitic. Canaan, I'm sorry, Ham is where my son came from, offspring of Ham in Ethiopia, the African continent as a whole, springing out of 
Noah's son Ham. Into that context, all of God preserving generation to generation, hope in His promise, preserving a dependent people, trusting Him to bless them. God, without you, I can't image you. I can't show your greatness. I can't declare to the world that you are king. I can't parent my children well. I can't hear them rightly and listen to their hearts. I can't pause and get out of my own drive for uh, what I'm doing in my work in order to listen to my wife and listen to my children. Without you, I can't do it. But with you, all things are possible. God, come. This line from generation to generation of godly fathers and godly mothers, very few in a sea of sinfulness, who God preserved. And then God raised up Abram. And When we read Sarah was barren, we have to say, how is God going to do this? And it's designed to enhance the significance of his obedience. And in doing that, to enhance the glory of the God of promise. But all the while, hoping, hoping. And then we come to a text like Genesis 22, 17. Through Isaac will your offspring be reckoned. It's through Isaac, not through Ishmael. It's through Isaac. Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him on the mountain. This is not just a call of a father to sacrifice his son, as hard as that is in our minds. It's through Isaac will your offspring be reckoned. The offspring is the echo of the nation promise, which stands directly in relationship to the offspring promise of Genesis 3.15, that, that God would, through this lineage of faithful men and women, ultimately bring about the Redeemer, the Son of God, at the climax of history. Adam, the first Adam being a son of God, Jesus having his lineage all the way back to there. There's hope for this. And then we come to this text. Abram, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. Because you've been willing to sacrifice your son, now I know that you fear me. It's very striking how Abram had told his servants in Genesis 22, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go up the hill and worship. And then... It says, we will return to you. So the writer of the Hebrews, looking at this text in Hebrews chapter 11, says, Abram believed in the resurrection. And I think he's just looking at the text. Because everything hinges on God's faithfulness to his offspring promise. The world is fully Dependent, the blessing of God to the world, reconciliation between God and man is fully contingent on Abram honoring God and yet he believed, he believed the God of promise and he, was, and he desired the promises and so God, so he was willing even to offer his own son and God stopped his arm and said, now I know that you fear me and then he makes this promise, because you've done this, Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand on the seashore. Offspring. In this text, does it look singular or plural at that point? Plural. As many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. But then in in the second half of 17, look what he does. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is an echo of Genesis 3.15. The hope is not bound up just in a people, but in the one royal offspring who would arise from the people. Moses saw it. Moses wrote of me, Jesus said. Why don't you believe him? Abram heard it. It's through Isaac that ultimately the offspring will rise, through whom the world will be blessed, through whom my sin will be addressed. Now we come to Paul. Know then that it is in those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So here's Abram, and here's me, and I want to be linked up to him in this lineage of great hope and kingdom promise. How do I get there? It's those of faith who link up with Abram, whether Jew or Gentile alike. 
But then notice what it says in the scripture, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Then notice what he says, in Christ Jesus. Abram, us, Gentiles, justified by faith in Christ Jesus. He's the one right in the middle of history. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of God comes to the Gentiles. So through you, Abraham, the world will be blessed. How? Through the single offspring of promise. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. But notice, it does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ Jesus is the one through whom the blessing comes. He's the one that we celebrate at Christmas. And now if you are His, then you are Abram's. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And Moses anticipated it all. It's this. I'm saying how could God prove himself desirable and believable to a dead, cursed heart. This text is anticipating how, and it's all about Christmas. And it's designed to generate worship within us. Deeper levels of humility, deeper, deeper levels of belief, deeper levels of trust. As Teresa and I consider moving into this new adoption, many of you walked with us through it last year, saw the in many respects, the hell we experienced. It was curse class 101, and we just walked through it, test after test after test, failing some, passing some, but all by the grace of God. What would make us want to jump in it again? Believe me, we had our list of excuses, and we presented them to God, and He graciously said, every one of those are excuses I am believable. And what I'm offering you is desirable. And we saw him reshaping our hearts so that what else can we do? The invitation is made. Come, follow me. And we said, yes. That's how God works it. And each one of you have your own areas that are needing to be overcome. Pray that God would prove himself believable and desirable all by the grace secured for you in the ultimate offspring of promise, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the one who lets us receive blessing and not curse. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I thank you that your spirit is faithful. You as a God of glory are faithful to show up. Open ears remove blindness, make yourself compellingly beautiful and desirable and believable so that those in this room who have been cautious, who've been apathetic, who've been lazy, who've been disobedient would find themselves being willing to go to higher levels of obedience and surrender and dependence and following than they've ever experienced in their lives. This season of Christmas be a true, lived out experience of the curse being overcome in their lives for the glory of Jesus. Image yourself as one believable and desirable through the hearts and lives of everyone in this room, I pray. So that others may see their good works and glorify you, the great Father in heaven. In Christ we ask, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom, 
and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.